Well, hey, everyone. Great to be with you today after missing last Sunday. Uh, we had a celebration of life service for my mother last weekend. It's a really meaningful time of remembrance and, and connection with lots of family and, and a few old friends. So thank you again for all your prayers, your expressions of love and care these past few months. In all my years of pastoring, I've always noted that Mother's Day can be a mixed bag for people. A source of joy and gratitude on the one hand, but uh, sometimes an occasion for longing and sadness. And this year, like many of you, I suppose, I'm feeling all those things today. So I'm, I'm glad we can be together. Well, as we get started today, I'd like to call out the fact that most of us listening to this message have been engaged in some unusual activities for the past 15 minutes or so. And I'm thinking here about those who've been watching the worship portion of our service. So if you're just listening to the sermon, you can be thinking about the, the last worship service you participated in, online or in person. And like I said, that probably involved some unusual activities. Singing out loud, for instance. I mean, most of us probably sing in the car or sing in the shower when no one's around. But it, it's kind of unusual for us to just burst into song, whether we're sitting alone in our living room or in a room full of people. And even if you're not actually singing out loud with us, it, it's not like you're watching a music video. Hopefully you're singing along in your head and your heart. That's kind of unusual. So we've sung and we've prayed. We've talked out loud to a supernatural being we can't see or hear. Talked as if that being was really there, really listening, really interested in what we have to say. We say thank you to that being. We ask for help. Sometimes we, we confess our sins and failures out loud. It's unusual. We've sung, we've prayed, we've read from an ancient book. A book written thousands of years ago in a language and culture completely different from our own. And yet we read it as if it has something relevant and important to say to us today in 2023. That's kind of unusual. We've even been invited to give away some of our money, a significant amount of money, actually. Just give it away without getting anything in return for it. That's not something most people do with their money. And it's not just the things we're doing that are unusual. It's the things we're not doing. Things that most other people are likely doing on a Sunday morning. Sleeping in, running to their kids' games, doing some yard work, enjoying a leisurely brunch. These things we've been doing and not doing comprise what we call worship. Now, worship is a feature in most religious traditions, and it's something we take very seriously in the Christian tradition. Our staff and volunteers spend hours and hours every week planning and delivering worship services. Each of you made the time and effort to participate today. You have high expectations for this time, for these activities, and probably some strong opinions and preferences about the kind of worship that's meaningful for you. And I know that because you let us know when the worship isn't working for you. This Friday night, we're setting aside a whole evening just to worship. There's not even going to be a sermon, just worship. And why do we do these things? Singing and praying and giving. 
Why do we take it so seriously and get so worked up about it? And should we take it so seriously? I mean, might there be better ways to invest our time and resources? Spending time with our loved ones, maybe, or, or serving the community? Some churches have actually taken to not gathering some Sundays and instead going out to serve people and places in need. Is that a better use of our time and energy? What exactly is worship, and why does it matter? Those are the questions we'd like to go after today. So as we continue our teaching series from one of the most mysterious and challenging books of the Bible, a book we call The Revelation. And that word, revelation, is a translation of the Greek word apocalypse, which means unveiling. This book is meant to pull back the curtain and reveal what's happening behind the scenes of our lives and of human history. And so far, we've learned that the book of Revelation is less about what's going to happen and more about what is happening. It does offer us a vision of the future, but it does so in order to help us live in the present as disciples of Jesus. And last week, Pastor Tim showed us that the book of Revelation is less about doomsday scenarios and more about the restoration of all things. It shines a light on the realities of evil and suffering in the world, but it promises ultimate victory over that evil and suffering through Christ. In fact, the basic premise of this series is that the book of Revelation, even with all of its mysterious and troubling images, is actually good news for the world. And it turns out that worship is a major theme in the book of Revelation. There are no less than nine interludes of worship sprinkled in among the troubling images and events. Uh, most preachers and commentators come up with five or seven or ten teachings on worship in this book. But you'll be happy to know we're going to focus on just two today. So with that in mind, let's drop in on a few of those worship interludes as we try to find out what worship is and why it matters. So let's join John as he enters the heavenly sanctuary in chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Uh, John has been exiled to the island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea in an attempt to silence him by the emperor. But while he's there, on the Lord's Day, a Sunday, He's given a vision of what's happening in what we call heaven, the spiritual realm. And the first thing he sees is an open door. There before me was a door standing open. It's a symbolic reminder that worship begins with an invitation. This God who resides in heaven wants to be known. He's not hidden. He's not distant. He's not a watchmaker God who set the universe in motion and then went off to take a nap. This God wants to be engaged and invites mere mortals like you and me into his 
presence. That door of worship is open to us, whether we're walking into a sanctuary or sitting alone at home or outdoors. God wants to be known. And what does that phrase, after this, mean? I will show you what must take place after this. I think it means, after all that's happened right up to this point, after the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, after the birth of the church and its expansion across the empire, after the destruction of Jerusalem by Rome in 70 AD, and after the passing and even martyrdom of the first generation of Jesus' followers. What happens now? John must have been wondering, along with all the other believers toward the end of the first century. What's next for the church? What will following Jesus look like for the generations to come? He's about to find out. So let's keep reading. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. At once, John was in the Spirit and in the room. No elaborate rituals to go through. He didn't have to work himself into a certain state to be able to worship. He just had to enter in. And we, too, can enter God's presence just as we are, wherever we are. Now, that doesn't mean we come flippantly or casually. I mean, we would get the sense that John was attentive and, and even reverent as he entered into that heavenly room. And, and we want to enter God's presence the same way. If you're worshiping at home, I, I hope you get yourself all set up beforehand so you're ready when the service starts. I hope you do your best to eliminate distractions. Put your phone in the other room. Get the kids set up with something if you need to. Watch from the beginning and give it your best attention all the way through to the closing moments. Enter into the experience. Well, at the center of that room, John says, was a throne. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby a rainbow that shone like an emerald and circled the throne. And the gemstones and the rainbow represent the beauty of God's presence, which is why we value beauty in our worship environments. Not just beautiful music, but beautiful light and color and furnishings. That's why our digital team works so hard to create a beautiful online experience, including telling me what kind of shirt to wear sometimes. And speaking of beauty, uh, the, the Lexington campus just completed a, a community mural in partnership with a, a local artist, Alex Cook. It, it greets people as they enter the sanctuary. But that throne wasn't the only thing in the room. John says, surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders. Well, the 24 elders represent probably the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of the early church. In other words, the whole people of God, Old Testament and New, Jew and Gentile, 
all represented before that throne. But they aren't the only ones in the room. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and back. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now, now we've talked about the fact that apocalyptic literature is meant to be understood symbolically. John is using earthly words and images to describe realities that are beyond human language or even visualization. So, are there four such creatures literally covered with eyes around God's throne? Or is John simply trying to tell us that the beings around God's throne see everything? Not through a glass darkly as we do in this world, but see clearly everything there is to see about God and his universe. And by the way, if, if like Tim Galley, you're afraid you might have to sing holy, holy, holy forever in heaven, remember, th these are not human beings John is describing. These are heavenly beings doing what they were designed to do for all eternity. You were designed to do other things for all eternity, and we'll find out about them in a few minutes. Well, John goes on to tell us, Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. So we have these concentric circles forming around the throne. First the four living creatures, then the 24 elders. And when we jump ahead to the next interlude in chapter 5, we see that beyond the circle of elders was an even larger circle of beings, angels this time. John writes, Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying and singing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. So now we have three circles around the throne, the creatures, the elders, and angels. But it doesn't stop there. In chapter 7, there's another interlude. This worship service is still going on. And we find a fourth ring of beings around that throne. And this time, it's people. After this, I looked. And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were waving palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. So we have these four concentric circles of different kinds of beings gathered around this throne. And all their activity, all their seeing and saying and singing and surrendering is directed toward that throne. 
And the thing they are seeing, the thing they are saying is, you are worthy, our Lord and God. And that is the essence of worship. Declaring in word and deed, with mind, body, and soul, that God is worthy. That word worship is rooted in the word worthy. Worthy of praise, worthy of devotion, worthy of service. In the words of one of our favorite worship songs, worthy of every song we could ever sing, worthy of all the praise we could ever bring, worthy of every breath we could ever breathe, we live for you. We live for you. So here we discover the first thing worship does and why worship matters. Worship centers us on God. It centers us on God. It reminds us that at the center of our lives, at the center of the universe, at the center of all that is and everything that happens, is the God who brought it all into being, who upholds it by the power of his might, and who is working all things together according to his good and eternal purpose. He's in charge. He's on the throne. As we said in week one, everything, everywhere, all the time. And that's why John is given this elaborate vision, why he describes it in such vivid detail. It's why I've taken the time to, to walk us through it this morning. He and I want to hang this scene on the walls of our imagination, a constant visual reminder of these circles gathered round the throne, a reminder that God is on his throne and that God is at the center. And those first century disciples needed that reminder. Because for one thing, the emperor at the time, Domitian, had declared himself to be Dominus et Deus, Lord and God. He was demanding that all Roman subjects bow to him, swear allegiance to him, put their trust in him. And to not do those things was to put yourself at risk of ostracism, of discrimination, or even death. Those readers needed to be reminded that there was only one Lord and God, and that they belonged to Him. There was no room for Christian nationalism, then or now. But John's readers weren't just facing persecution. They were also dealing with distraction. When we were in Israel a few weeks ago, we visited the ruins of a first-century city named Scythopolis. It was one of the ten cities of the Decapolis mentioned in the Gospels. It was a flourishing city in the time of Jesus and the early church. And we were amazed at the luxury and sophistication of that city. It had a huge theater for plays and performances that would seat an audience of thousands, complete with restrooms that would accommodate the rush at intermission, we know because 50 of us found a seat in it. It had a stadium for chariot races, 
where Caesar's Sportsbook likely got its start. A shopping mall with marble storefronts and walkways inlaid with mosaic. Public gymnasiums and baths that included a cold pool, a warm pool, and a steam room. And these facilities weren't just for the rich and famous. They were available to the working-class people of the day. All this to say, there were a variety of things competing for the attention and affection of those first-century disciples. Powers to be afraid of and pleasures to be seduced by. So John, under the inspiration of the Spirit, paints this picture of the multicolored, many-splendored, mega-powerful throne room of God and invites his readers to join the crowd gathered round that throne, occupied by the one true Lord and God, who alone was worthy of their affection and trust. And that's why worship matters. That's why it matters to us, because we too deal with all kinds of competing interests, uh, uh, vying for our attention and our trust. All week long, our, our minds and spirits and bodies get yanked around. Emails from work, a note from the teacher, a seductive website, our bank statement, our news feeds, the latest celebrity gossip or political scandal or random act of violence. We begin to forget who we are and what we believe and what our life is all about. And so once a week, on the Lord's Day, generally, we gather in community and remind ourselves that God is on the throne. With songs and words and actions, we remind ourselves how good and beautiful and powerful our God is. And with mind and body and spirit, we place Him at the center of our lives, our homes and careers and our futures. One writer puts it this way. Humanity will never discover fruitful life and true joy through technology, wealth, science, sports, sex, celebrity, power, or politics. It comes only by engaging in loving service and worship of God and the Lamb as part of a faithful community of worship. That reality shapes our mission in the world. Friends, I know that COVID knocked us all out of our rhythms and routines, and weekly corporate worship was one of the casualties. And I know that some of us are still finding our way back to that rhythm. Let this heavenly vision, this revelation from God, remind you and inspire you to make corporate worship a central feature of your life, online or in person. Not once in a while, but once a week. You know, we hear a lot about the mental health crisis in our country. Rising levels of anxiety and depression and despair. Maybe it has something to do with the loss of a center of many people's lives. No sense of groundedness in something or someone larger than ourselves. 
mothers, fathers. It's one of the most important gifts you can give to your children. A center, a sense of identity and belonging and purpose that transcends every other power and pursuit and pleasure. Worship matters because it centers us on God. But, but the premise of our series is that revelation isn't just good for us, it's good for the world. So how is that true when it comes to worship? Why is worship good for the world? Well, we don't have as much time to spend on this one, so, so let me get right to the point. Worship centers us on God, and worship sends us out into the world to live and love like Jesus. Uh, let, let's look one more time at that third interlude, that third worship scene in chapter 7. Uh, John describes a great multitude of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue gathered around the throne, waving palm branches and crying out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's such a stirring sight that one of the elders turns and asks John a question. Like those sitcoms where the characters turn and talk directly to us. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they? Where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. We do this sometimes in worship. We ask each other questions we already know the answer to. Just to hear ourselves say it again. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made themselves white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, the tribulation was something that, that the prophets and Jesus had spoken about. A time of great trouble on the earth that would happen before the end of the age. Now, it's been all kinds of speculation about this, what this tribulation will look like, how long it will last, whether or not believers will have to go through it. Some people understand the tribulation to be a very specific, literal, seven-year period of persecution and suffering that will happen just before Christ's return. Personally, I understand the tribulation as a more general description of all the persecution and suffering that has happened and will keep happening with greater intensity until Christ returns. And in chapter 6, in between the two worship scenes in chapter 5 and chapter 7, we get a glimpse into that tribulation period. John is given a vision of, of what we sometimes call the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Conquest, war, famine, and death being turned loose on the earth. And once again, to me, they seem to represent all the forms of tribulation the earth has endured throughout human history. And the people John is describing here in chapter 7, gathered round the throne, seem to be believers who have lived through this tribulation and faithfully borne a witness to Jesus, even at the cost of their own lives. So once again, we're learning what we learned a couple weeks ago, that revelation is less about escape and more about engagement. 
John is given this vision and told to send it to the churches to encourage them to remain faithful and bold, even in the face of difficulty and persecution. So it's not about believers being taken out of the world to escape the difficulties. It's about believers being sent into the world to live and love like Jesus, who laid down his life for the good of the world. And look at what he promises to those who are faithful and persevere. Verse 15. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not be down on them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You want to know what you'll be doing for all eternity if you're a disciple of Jesus? You won't be playing a harp or chanting holy, holy, holy in a heavenly choir. You'll be serving God, whatever that looks like in the new heavens and the new earth. You'll be enjoying God's presence every moment. You'll have nothing to fear, nothing to want, nothing to mourn. You'll be experiencing life to the full, springs of living water for all eternity. A vision like that can keep you going through a lot of bad stuff. So now we begin to understand how these nine interludes of worship function in the book of Revelation. They're meant to provide a respite, a relief from the difficulties and challenges of the tribulation. They're meant to remind believers who their God is, and what their mission is, and what they can look forward to in the life to come. Like, like halftime in a tough game, these worship interludes are meant to remind us who we are, whose team we're on, what the game plan is, and then send us back out onto the field, into the world, to live boldly and faithfully for Christ. And that's why worship matters. Now, we're not dealing with, with persecution necessarily in 2023, but we experience a, a lot of tough stuff in the course of a week. Demanding jobs, bad news, difficult people, health issues, financial setbacks, concern for our loved ones, uncertainty about the future. We wonder sometimes if we're going to make it, if anything good can come from all this, if God is still there, and if Jesus is still worth following. And then we come to worship. We enter into a sacred and beautiful space. We're greeted by people who love us and care about us. We sing about a God of power and love and grace. We tell the story of a Savior who won the victory over sin and death. We talk to God about what's happening in the world, in our lives, in our hearts. We hear God speak to us through the scriptures and through one another, offering wisdom and healing and hope. 
we free ourselves from the love of money by contributing to the work of the kingdom. We gather around a table with a bread and cup that remind us of Christ's work on the cross. We watch as people are baptized, celebrating their commitment to following Christ. Then before we leave, we receive a benediction, a good word to send us on our way. You see what worship does? You see why worship matters? It sends us out into the world to live and love like Jesus, which is actually an extension of our worship. But that's another sermon. We need these heavenly interludes on a Sunday morning, on a Friday night, to center ourselves, to see the world through the eyes of faith and hope and love. To, to follow the Lamb out into loving service to the world. I'm so glad we'll have a chance to lean into this on Friday night this week. Well, let me le leave you with the words of a commentator who, who captures well why worship matters. We are a community that sees the world differently from the way others see it. Where others see brokenness, we see wholeness. Where others see death, we see life. Where others see hate, we see love. Where others see a world in rebellion, we see a world transformed. Even when the events around us seem to argue against any belief that God will triumph, we keep singing our victory songs, confident that the love and mercy of God will ultimately bring healing to a fractured creation. Friends, when we worship well, it's good for us and good for the world because it centers us on God and sends us out to live and love like Jesus until he comes again. Let's pray into these things. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, great God, three in one, we worship you today. We declare that you are God, that you alone are worthy of our praise and service and trust. Forgive us, Lord, for allowing fear and distraction to, to knock us out of our rhythms, to take our eyes off you. Take your rightful place on the throne of our lives this week and go with us as we offer love and truth to a needy and hurting world. In Jesus' name, amen.